Joseph Waits. This podcast, Pastor Dave talks to us about waiting. In Genesis 41, 1 through 49, Joseph waits. Sometimes God does some of his best work while we wait in the trenches. Can we maintain integrity in the trench? Can we offer up our suffering to him as spiritual preparation for what is to come? Can we just wait? When a person becomes a Christian, um, many things occur in their life. First of all, they're forgiven of all their sins. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> they are forgiven of all their sins. And it, it doesn't really even matter if they forgive themselves. <laughs> God completely washes them clean of all their sins. And it, it, it's nothing that they deserve. It's nothing that they merit. It is just a gift of God's grace to them. They're given the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Um, he brings the dead spirit in them, it says in Scripture. It brings that to life. And because of his presence in them, he, they now have a brand new identity. They're no longer identified as the sinner from their birth. They are identified now as the saint redeemed by the holy grace of God. <laughs> That's who they used to be, is that old dead sinner. They have now become a holy child of God because the Holy One lives in them. They're a different spiritual person. They're a new creation, it says, that is nothing like the old. But it's even more than that. As one who now lives in the Holy Spirit of Jesus, they are adopted into a family. A family with whom they share the beauty of Christ together. In Christ, they are given supernatural abilities. Amen? And the gifts of the Spirit to edify the body of Christ and participate in the mission of Christ. In Christ, they have been given the fruit of the Spirit, which includes love, joy, peace, patience, and a whole bunch of other stuff. <laughs> they just don't care about the things the world cares about anymore, amen. That was a little less positive. They just don't care about the stuff the world cares about. They just don't. They live from a place of freedom and divine rest. <laughs> because they now abide in Christ, they see the world through a whole different lens. Everything that happens is funneled through this new life to the point where even suffering now has meaning. There is purpose in loss. I'm messing with your head now, aren't I? Yeah, right, right? And there is a war in which they are engaged against the principalities of darkness. And they, never, they, don't ever, they don't even see their life anymore through this temporary lens of their own worldly peace, security, and prosperity, right? <laughs> they see everything through the eternal lens of God's kingdom. And they live day by day expectant of the return of the king. The risen Christ who is temporarily, just temporarily away, and he's preparing a place for them. One day, dare I say soon, he will be coming after us. And they will live forever with him in a beautiful place of eternal glory. That's what happens when a person becomes a Christian. <laughs> so, how's it going? <laughs> 
I came, I, I, I can back up each phrase of that opening paragraph with Scripture. That's what happens when a person comes to Christ and he changes their life. The problem comes when they don't either know that, maybe they've been misled to believe now there's all this responsibility on them, or they just don't believe it. Their experience doesn't match that, so they just are going to believe their experience more than the truth. Doesn't change the fact that all that I said is absolutely 100% true. Satan, Satan takes direct aim at this truth, and he has since the beginning of time. He does not want you free from the world and alive wholly unto Christ. He wants you thinking that Jesus has come for your worldly peace and prosperity. He wants you believing that because you are still tempted, you're not really changed. He doesn't want you thinking that you're a real holy one of God because the holy one lives in you. He wants you to think that you're still a sinner just holding on until he comes for me. You see, growing in Christ can be defined as coming to greater and greater revelations of what he, Jesus, has already done in your life. It is believing these things are true and that they are true of me. And the Holy Spirit is always at work, or better yet, at war against the infiltration of deception and doubt. He's growing my faith as I align more and more to the truth about who he is and about myself and about the world and what this whole existence is about. The Holy Spirit is always at work, such as if a Christian sees their identity in their work instead of the Holy Spirit, then a job loss can be extremely spiritually fruitful. Amen. If a Christian is living for their retirement, then a stock market crash can really propel them spiritually. <laughs> Oh, if a Christian is a control freak, not that we have any here, but if a Christian is a control freak and insists on managing their own life, then sending things of which are out of their complete control can be a beautiful work of God's Spirit. Oh, last one. If a Christian prays and prays for God to do things their way, his silence is extremely beneficial. As we grow in Christ, he uses everything in our life to bring us to greater and greater and deeper and deeper levels of faith. So we believe all the things he's already done in us. Abiding in Christ is the daily recognition that he and only he is the source of life. He is my power. He is my refuge. He is my joy. He is my friend. He's my love. And we're going to look at a scene in Joseph's life today. We're going through Genesis, the life of Joseph, that demonstrates all of this. He, he's been sold by his brothers into slavery. Now, under, listen to this. 
He has been sold by his brothers into slavery, yet God is with him. We don't usually connect those two things together, do we? If I'm, if I'm sold into slavery, God must be taking a break or something, you know? That's not the way this is supposed to work. I'm not supposed to be sold into slavery and following God. He is falsely accused of attacking his boss's wife and gets thrown into prison, yet God is with him. He tells the cupbearer, remember the story from last week's message? He tells the cupbearer that you're going to get out of here in three days, and when you do, tell Pharaoh that I'm a good guy and get me out of here. Of which the cupbearer does get out in three days and promptly forgets about Joseph and leaves him in prison. Yet God is with him. He spends the next two years in what is actually called the pit, the dungeon, alone and useless. It's just him and God for two years. There's a quote by A.W. Tozer that says this, It is doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he has hurt him deeply. I don't want to think that way. We see so many examples in Scripture, though. The scene today is that Pharaoh has a dream. Now, this is not Potiphar. Remember, Potiphar was the head of the secret service, basically. <laughs> and uh, Joseph was his charge, and then they had that mix-up with his wife, and he goes in prison, and now he's now he before the big guy. You know, this is Pharaoh. You know, like Yul Brenner. Half of you have no idea what that means, do you? <laughs> Look at them down here. You'll bring, who's he, right? Right? He kind of has my haircut. If I do that, yeah. Watch the Ten Commandments. It's a great movie, all right? He has a dream that no one can interpret, not even the wisest people of the land. We read this in the eighth verse of 41 Genesis. Now in the morning his spirit was troubled, so he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men, and Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was no one who could interpret them to Pharaoh. So here's the point. The world's smart people aren't that smart. <laughs> Amen? They just aren't. As we see later in the chapter, these dreams are from God himself. And the world just doesn't get it. And I would even say, I don't, the, the world can't get it. They just don't think this way. Such as, I thought about this, what if you went up to a really smart atheist? Wait, is that even possible? No, wait, okay. But you know what I mean, right? A really smart guy who happens to be an atheist. And you say, listen, I've got something to tell you. One day, very soon, Jesus is coming back. All of a sudden, at one time, Mr. Atheist, at one time, millions and millions of people, his followers, are just going to be removed from the planet. All the kids, too. They're just going to be gone. 
And then the world is going to go, it's going to just spin out of control under one leader, king, a king, if you will, who will be the Antichrist. There's not going to be any more nations. There's not going to be any more separate economies. People are going to have to pledge allegiance to this leader in order to buy or sell anything. And then after the seven worst years in human history, Christ is going to return with his people to destroy the enemy. The clouds are going to open up. There's this white horse, this huge white horse, Mr. Atheist. And he, Jesus is going to come, he's going to lock up Satan, he's going to rule the earth for a thousand years, and then there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. What do you think about that, Mr. Atheist? You're crazy. 1 Corinthians 2.14 But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised or judged or decided. <coughs> you know, we have no idea what happened during those two years in the prison cell. We don't have any information about the dialogue between Joseph and God. But we do know that Joseph emerges from this wilderness season as a man of God fully in step with God's plan. A man who realizes his place in the mission of God. A man who doesn't live unto himself. A man who knows and hears the voice of God. The scene is that uh, Pharaoh can't find anybody to interpret the dream. <laughs> Don't you love it? It's the cupbearer. After two years, Pharaoh, I know a guy. Right? He tells Pharaoh of his experience with Joseph and how his dream was interpreted correctly. I think this guy can do this, Pharaoh. So here's what happens, and I'm going to read a bunch of the story here, starting with verse 14. Then Pharaoh sent and called for Joseph, and they hurriedly brought him out of the dungeon, and when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, after all, he's going to Pharaoh, right? He came to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I've had a dream, but no one can interpret it, and I've heard it said about you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph then answered Pharaoh, saying, uh-uh, it's not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. I love the word favorable. In the Hebrew, it's shalom, a peaceful, restful answer. So Pharaoh spoke to Joseph in my dream, and here's the dream. Behold, I was standing on the bank of the Nile, and behold, seven cows, fat and sleek, came up out of the Nile, and they grazed in the marsh grass. Lo, seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and gaunt, such as I had never seen for ugliness in all the land of Egypt. And the lean and ugly cows ate up the first seven fat cows. Yet when they had devoured them, it could not be detected that they had devoured them, for they were just as ugly as before. <laughs> I don't know why. And then I awoke. He, had them, he either also had this second dream or he goes back to sleep. I don't know. But it says, I, also, I saw also in my dream, and behold, seven ears 
full of good, full and good, came up on a single stalk, and lo, seven ears, withered, thin, and scorched by the west wind, sprouted up after them. And the thin ears swallowed the seven good ears. Then I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. Now Joseph said to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's dreams are one and the same. God has told the Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years, and the seven good ears are seven years, and the dreams are one and the same. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven thin ears scorched by the east wind will be seven years of famine. It is as I have spoken to Pharaoh. God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Behold, seven years of great abundance are coming in all the land of Egypt, and after them seven years of famine will come, and all the abundance will be forgotten in the land of Egypt, and the famine will ravage the land. So the abundance will be unknown in the land because of that subsequent famine, for it will be very severe. Now as for the repeating of the dream to Pharaoh twice, it means that the matter is determined by God, and God will quickly bring it about. So he offers some advice. Now let Pharaoh look for a man discerning and wise and set him over the land of Egypt. <laughs> when I first read that, I thought, you're talking to Pharaoh here. And you're telling Pharaoh, I don't think you got what it takes. You need to find somebody that can do this. And then, if you read on, the, Joseph lays out this whole plan of what needs to happen in the seven good years to prepare for the seven bad years. We need to collect food, and we have this, he has even a formula that you have to collect a fifth of it and hold it back, and Pharaoh likes the plan, and what does he do? Joseph, you're the man. You're only going to answer to me. You're going to be over everything. And he gives him the ring. He gives him the garments. He gives him the gold necklace. He even gives him the chariot. I think that would be really cool. Now, remember at the beginning of this particular day? Where was he? You just never know what a day will bring, right? God knew what he was doing all along. He knew the exact timing. He knew why Joseph had to be there in the dungeon, in the pit for two years. Here's some things we learned from the story, I think. Pharaoh praises Joseph as a great interpreter of dreams. In response, Joseph says, he corrects him, oh, it's not me, Pharaoh. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Now, you might read that and go, man, Joseph's really a humble guy, isn't he? I, I just don't think he's being humble here. I, I don't think that's what this is about. Oh, Pharaoh, thanks, but no, it's not me, no. I think he's just being truthful. God's the one that's doing this. I mean, if he went to Pharaoh and said, yeah, thanks, I really, I really am special, aren't I? <laughs> if he said that, what would he be doing? Telling a lie. It's just not true. Because here's the truth. The truth is that God produces all fruit. 
neither you or I can produce fruit. In other words, don't ever take credit yourself for something God is doing through you. And it's not because you're some kind of super humble person. You have to understand that. It's simply because it's the truth. For you to take credit would be a lie. <laughs> I mean, I feel that way about my ministry here at Grace Bible Church. I mean, through an absolutely weird series of events, I found myself one day as the pastor. I had never been to a Bible church in my life until I came to this church. Not only that, I wasn't a preacher. I'm a piano player, for goodness sakes. Little did I know that 20 years later, I'm still here. <laughs> and that God would accomplish so much. He has simply given me the privilege of having a front row seat to see him bear fruit. The only thing I can take credit for is doing my best to stay out of his way. <laughs> and again, I'm not saying that to say I'm some kind of super humble person because I've got a long ways to go on that. <laughs> I'm saying it because to say anything else would be a lie. God produces all fruit. Look at what Jesus says to his disciples, John 15, 4. Abide in me and I in you as the branch. Who's the branch? You, me, all of us. We're just little branches. As the branch cannot. This is not a perhaps or a maybe. An absolute. The branch cannot bear fruit of itself. Unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you, unless you abide or stay or remain, which is what the word means, in me. It's not an opinion. It's, it, it, it really isn't even a theology. It's just a statement of fact. You can't do anything fruitful without him. When his life is pouring through ours, he gets things done. And if we ever try to handle something ourselves, you ever done that? No fruit. No fruit. Something I think we also learn from this scene in Joseph's life is this. Don't force things. Wait on God. I mean, sometimes you don't have a choice. I mean, Joseph didn't really have a choice here. <laughs> You know, he's thrown in jail. He's sold by his brothers. And but I see it so often. So, so often people get so impatient. They get so frustrated. Their life is not turning out the way it's supposed to turn out. And There's this roadblock and this roadblock. Doesn't God see what's going on? I mean, don't we live in kind of an entitled society? I mean, sometimes I, people graduate from high school or graduate from college, and they, 
They, they believe that they ought to be able to walk into the job of their dreams making enough money to afford everything their parents afforded after they worked for 25 years. I deserve it. I'm entitled. I say, don't ever go there because if you want God's life for you, if you want God's purpose, if you want God's will in you, he will take direct aim at the attitude of entitlement. He's got to dismantle that. He's got to destroy that. Sometimes you just need to wait. Aren't you glad for that good news today? Just keep moving on. Don't lose your integrity. Work hard at the job you think that is way beneath you. Let God open doors when he's good and ready to open doors. Maybe today you're in some kind of pit, dungeon. Don't sit there mad and frustrated and depressed and Understand that God does some of his best work in the pits of life. <laughs> I can testify to that. See where you are as preparation for what he may unfold in the future. Let yourself be broken of self. I love the way Psalm 27 ends. The last two verses say, I would have despaired unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Oh, yes. Wait for the Lord. I think we have to understand, waiting is not inactivity. <laughs> Waiting is this constant awareness, this ever-present hope that I know my God knows what's going on here. I know my God someday will whatever. And so we wait, and the passage says we're strong in our waiting. We're courageous in our waiting. Our faith is unwavering. It, it may be that... Uh, your waiting happens while you're a slave in a caravan to Egypt. <laughs> hmm. It may be in the luxury of Potiphar's home. It may be in the darkness of a prison. We just live day after day after day with this understanding that God will take it all and use it all for what he's planned. As Christians today, are we waiting? <laughs> I don't know about you, but I'm waiting to be raptured. It's not under our control, is it? It's not something with, and it's not something with which we just shut down our lives as we wait. We actively wait. 
We are not frustrated by the delay because he has told us that he's not slow in his coming, but is patient toward us, not wanting for any to perish, but all to come to repentance. 2 Peter 3.9. But we wait. One last quick point. Here's good news. God caused the famine. Wow. I hope you saw that from the story. It, it, it mentions it twice, that this is God's doing. It's his idea. And I think if you study prophecy, you see the prophetic nature of the seven years of abundance and the seven years of famine. Why seven? Why not eight? Why not six? Here's what I take from it. God wants me to know that his abundance put in my hands, he has purpose for it. It's, it's human nature to have abundance and just live high on the hog and this is never going to end. You ever get that way? <laughs> it, this, this, this nation's always going to be like it is, isn't it? We're always going to have all this prosperity. We're always going to have all this opportunity. And we're going to have all this freedom. Yes, right? It's just always going to be this way, right? It's so abundant. It's so good. Until when? Until it's not. Also this. God will bring famine, inflict pain for his divine purposes. God knows what he's doing. He's capable. What if God called you to a foreign country as a slave? What if he raised you to power only to have you falsely accused and thrown into prison for two years? Would you turn on him? Would you let him use the pain? I think many modern, comfortable American Christians would actually turn on him. They have a false belief that God is supposed to whatever. They've made him into their image instead of the other way around. I love this quote from C.S. Lewis. We want not so much of a father, but a grandfather in heaven. Think about that for a minute. He goes on, a God who, who said of anything we happen to like doing, what does it matter as long as they're happy? As a grandfather, I know exactly what he's talking about. You may have picked up, these days I, I find myself thinking a lot about the end times. The rapture. The, the coming tribulation, the mark of the beast, the second coming of Jesus, his reign on earth for a thousand years. I've, I've heard these things all of my life, but for some reason they have moved from the someday file to the maybe soon file. And it really does change the way you think about things. The little worries, the struggles, the hurt feelings. Yeah, they're, they're here, but he's coming. The struggle here is almost over. I, I say that even if it's 10, 20, 30 years. It's just a moment compared to eternity. 
It's like all of creation is in the pit where Joseph was until they came to him, pulled him out and said, the king has come for you this day, this hour. Are you ready? I thought about that. I wrote that in my notes, and then I thought, I should ask it this way. Aren't you ready? <laughs> One, two, three, four. We do hope that you've enjoyed this episode today. If you'd like to learn more about Grace Bible Church in Georgetown, Texas, please visit us at gbcgt.org. Many blessings from our church family to yours.